Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. Welcome back to Uniting America. My guest today for this episode is veteran journalist and Fox News host Trace Gallagher, host of Fox at Night. I've been a guest of Trace's on his program several times now and thought it would be nice to return the favor. So we brought him on. Now, this was a fast-paced conversation about the media's role in polarization, how the media left and right helped us to get to this point where Americans are so divided, the tensions that exist between the work of opinion-making and journalism, and how we draw the line between the two. I had been planning this conversation with Trace for a little while, but it's interesting that it happened while Fox was preparing to settle its suit with Dominion voting systems over Fox's coverage of the 2020 election voter fraud claims and particularly, of course, some of its prominent opinion hosts' endorsement of those claims related to Dominion. This is another moment in time where millions of Americans will find their confidence in at least one side of the media universe to suffer another heavy blow. Yet polling shows that Americans in general have little trust in political news media, broadly speaking, uh, whether we're talking about Fox News or CNN. This conversation gives a Fox Insider's view of the reasons why. And now, Trace Gallagher. Trace Gallagher, welcome to Uniting America. John Wood, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, man. It's great to have you. And of course, you know, you're you're local. You and I are both Southern California guys. Right. I'm uh, born right. and bred in Los Angeles, born and raised in L.A., but you are a uh, San Diegan? Is I was that... born in San Diego. Okay. I uh, spent the first decade, a little more than a decade of my life in San Diego. Okay. And then um, in the mid-70s, my parents bought... A, an old youth hostel, a ski lodge, right, mm-hmm. in Mammoth ah. Lakes, California. My. And I moved up there. I was the youngest of five. Mm-hmm. My older brothers and sisters had all graduated from high school at that time. So mm-hmm. I was in middle school, and um, we moved to Mammoth. Okay. And so Mammoth became kind of my hometown. Went mm-hmm. to high school up there, graduated high school, and then went back to— uh, I went back to San Diego eventually mm. and went to University of San Diego and played a little football down there. That's right. Division three, John, you know, not, <laughs> not big time, but mm. big enough time for me. For you, know good- you, you know what you're doing with the pigskin and I'm guessing you know what you're doing with the pair of skis. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. You know, I can, I can get around on both. I can't throw the football yeah. like I, like I used mm-hmm. to. Of course, I never had a great arm, so I shouldn't, yeah, uh, right. I shouldn't act like I did, but mm-hmm. I had pretty, pretty quick feet and I was, uh, I was quick enough to get the ball mm-hmm. out there in a, in a, in a timely manner. So mm. Yeah, right. So that was my that was my claim to fame at the time. Well, I did a little amateur boxing when I was very young. I was did raised you? in boxing gyms. Yeah, but more recently, I went and fractured the knuckle on my left hand, getting mad at punching something that I shouldn't have punched, and so I can't quite throw the jab the way I used to. And so you know, these are the uh, these are the fruits of of aging. You know, are you still a fan of boxing? Do you still watch it? You know, I, uh, I I don't keep up with it religiously, but I'm somebody who's still pretty astute at the history of the sport. So right. I was raised right. knowing, you know, everything from, you know, John L. Sullivan to, to Lennox Lewis and whatnot. And sure. So, you know, I was raised on stories of the old fighters. My father's life was changed by Muhammad Ali. Really? You know, and that first Ali-Frazier fight, which uh, really sort of, you know, captured the attention, not just of the country, but, but right. of the world, you know. And actually, you know, that's a pretty good segue into our conversation here, because You know, there are all sorts of ways in which uh, as Americans, you know, uh, we share circumstances. Sure. We share proximity to each other, live next to people, attend schools together and so forth. But there's a way in which if there are not bridges to one another through culture, 
you know, it's harder for us to understand each other. It's harder for us to have shared points of reference and therefore harder for us to have relationships. And we mm-hmm. can't have relationships together. You know, how do we have a democracy together? Right. The first Ali Frazier fight uh, was something that my dad always raised me with a great deal of sort of nostalgia around mm-hmm. Because in my father's memory, that brought America together. Right. For, you know, at least for for for, for a brief moment, you know. Uh, Ali was, you know, the people's champion. He was controversial, took a stand against the, you know, the Vietnam War and so forth. Right. A lot of folks who, who are anti-Ali sort of looked at Frazier as being this guy who, you know, was championing sort of authentic American values, so on and so forth. But when they stepped into the squared circle, everybody paused. Everybody had that moment in common. Right. You know, and right. I think that for a lot of people today, there's the feeling that as Americans, you know, we just don't have much in common anymore. We've drifted apart in the way that we look at the world, uh, but we also don't necessarily have uh, even uh, uh, pastimes and hobbies and, and habits uh, in, in common. Sports seems to be politicized. Entertainment seems to be politicized. Everything seems to be politicized. My starting question for you here is um, how do you look at the role um, of of news media mm-hmm. uh, in either building a bridge towards Americans being able to understand and be in relationship with each mm-hmm. other or being a thing that sort of drives us apart? It's a big question, but I'm wondering what you do with it. It is. And I just want to go back if I can, because I just not to dispute your theory of that, mm-hmm. that we are broken and that sports doesn't bring us together, because I think we've seen a couple of instances this year. Yeah. In fact, every year and every sport that brings us together in, in microcosms in mm-hmm. small doses. And I think when there's talk about sports divides us because some of the, the leagues, mm-hmm. you know, want to implement different policies that the country disagrees with, yeah. that they are split on. Mm-hmm. But I think if you go to a live event, if you go to a live football game at SoFi, like I do, I like the Chargers. Yeah. So I have Charger season tickets and I go. Mm-hmm. And when you go in there, you've got 70, 80,000 people sitting in one venue and there doesn't seem to be these disparate feelings. And mm-hmm. these are all, even if you are Charger fans and you're Raider fans or whatever, mm-hmm. there seems to be this kind of community. Yeah. Right. And so nobody knows what the guy sitting next to you, what his political affiliation is. Mm -hmm. And so when your team scores a a touchdown or, you know, big Mm -hmm. play, there's high fives, right? There's high fives all around. This guy would Mm -hmm. buy you a beer and you'd buy him a Coke or whatever the deal is. It's just kind of there's this there's this camaraderie Mm -hmm. that I have noticed Mm -hmm. in athletics overall. And I think it kind of breaks down these political barriers. And so you Mm -hmm. wonder all these people who are high-fiving and hugging and saying, yeah, 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 they're clearly of different political opinions. I mean, Mm -hmm. there have to be. They aren't all on the—all the Chargers fans aren't conservative. All the Chargers fans aren't liberal. That's right. So— there have to be there has to be some common ground. Mm-hmm. And, and if you if you take out the politics, which for those instances and in those moments, you are taking politics out of the equation. I think you see this coming together. I mm-hmm. think you see athletics bring us together. I think when the Buffalo Bills player uh, suffered the heart attack and right. there were people praying on the sidelines. We it, talked about that on your show. It we was did. an inspiring moment. We did. And it brought people together. It brought the country together. And I think I think that there is actually more uniting us than dividing us. But we have these different factions and these different ideas that people want to put forth mm-hmm. in an effort, I think, to be divisive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where we get off path. Mm-hmm. As far as what media goes in there, you know, listen, the media, the media clearly, you know, does not help 
uh, bring the country together. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who would say, oh man, the media is just bringing everybody together. Mm -hmm. There are, there are different news organizations who cover different things, who have different political persuasions, who, you know, who, Mm -hmm. who like to cover different topics. And sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, that's divisive. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think our job as, as media people really should be to try and, and find some type of, of ground that we can all at least agree on. I mean, mm. It's not everything. I mean, people are clearly going to have different ideas. Yeah. And I think that's valuable. Mm. I think it's instructive. I think it's valuable. And I think it is beneficial mm. for us to have different opinions mm. and to have different viewpoints. And what what troubles me the most in recent stories and stuff we've done was the, the Stanford law students mm. shouting down the federal judge. Mm. I think that's kind of where we get off path. And, and mm. I don't care what your opinion is. If it was liberal shouting down a, a conservative judge or conservative shouting down a liberal judge, I think it's wrong because mm. I think we are not going, and as you have brought up many times, we are not going to accomplish anything. We are going to get nowhere if we don't have robust debate. And I tell everybody, uh, all these young people that I mentor who want to become television news reporters and anchors and so forth. And I mentor a lot of young kids Mm. and I say, listen, the bottom line is, is that you absolutely need to hear both sides of the story. You can't Mm. just hear one side. You can't shut down one side. You have to have robust debate. Your debate, your words have to be reasoned and you have to be persuasive. Mm. That's the thing. That's how you change minds. You don't change minds by putting your fingers in your ears and just me, 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 right? You don't change minds by shouting somebody else down. Mm. You don't do anything by not allowing somebody else to speak. Make sure that your debate is robust, it's reasoned, it's persuasive, and then sit back and listen to theirs and, and may the best person win. That's the way that I view it. You and I see things very similar in that way. But I want to go ahead and personalize things a little bit once again here. Why do you do what you do? What what sent you on the path towards being towards being a journalist? And for that matter, how do you define what you do? Because I think that part of what makes uh, people a little bit confused these days is that a lot of folks run around calling themselves journalists. A lot of people sit in front of cameras and sit in front of microphones. And a lot of people talk about the news and the stories. But when it comes down to it, a lot of times people who look like they're sitting in similar chairs are actually doing very different things. Sure. So I want to know sort of how did you get to do what it is that you do currently and, and how do you exactly define your craft? Well, when I was, uh, when I was back in college and I think I, I told you I was, I was playing athletics, I was playing football mm-hmm. and stuff, but in the summertime yeah. I was, uh, I was actually a water skier. I was actually um, a show skier probably mm-hmm. before your times. I don't think they have very many shows <laughs> It's not a, anymore, it's not a show I've never, I've ever been to. Okay. Right. So back in the day, they <laughs> yeah. would have places like SeaWorld and mm-hmm. Cypress Gardens and, you know, different venues around the country yeah. would have these water ski shows. Okay. And you would go out and you would have a team and you would do these pyramids. They'd build these big pyramids on water skis and there would be the, you know, jumping and slalom skiing and barefoot water skiing. Mm-hmm. And there were all kinds of different things. And they would turn it into this themed show and mm-hmm. they would put these things on at a, at a SeaWorld theme mm-hmm. park or at Cypress Gardens in Florida or at Great Adventure in New Jersey or Magic Mountain just up the road would have mm-hmm. these ski shows. Yeah. And so that's what I did during the summer. And uh, it was great fun and, and really one of the, one of the best times of my life. Mm-hmm. But there was one summer when I got hurt. 
And uh, the show director came up to me and he said, well, listen, we've got two opportunities for you. You can either be in the pickup boat, which is the guy who drives around the boat and he picks up the skis that the skiers drop <laughs> off, right? Okay. Or you can start announcing some of these ski shows. So I took the latter, right? Uh, so I started announcing some of these water ski shows. And that was in, that was in the early days of cable, right? It was in the early days of cable when USA Network and places like that, they would put on ping pong if mm-hmm. they could, because they didn't have anything to air. <laughs> sure. So they would put on, you know, chicken races and ping pong, whatever. And mm-hmm. they actually started covering some water ski events. I mean, they don't do it anymore because it wasn't all that popular, <laughs> but they needed people to be able to talk about what was going on. Right. Yeah, and right. so I was one of those people who I get a chance to kind of do some of that stuff. So I was announcing ski shows live mm-hmm. at, during the ski show, telling people what was going on. And then I got a little side hustle work, not very much, but doing some of these cable broadcasts. Podcasts. Or was there a Vin Scully or a Chick Hearns of ski show commentary? No. I'm just wondering, like, who's who's your blueprint for right. that? And see, that's the whole thing is that's why it didn't succeed. That's why they don't right. do it anymore yeah, because yeah. it wasn't very popular. <laughs> sure. But at the time, yeah. you know, when CNN would literally, you know, they would they would run hours of bowling or yeah. hours of whatever they could run because mm-hmm. they needed they just needed programming and mm-hmm. they didn't have the rights to anything or right. the money to buy the rights to anything. So all they did was they aired, you know, they. The, the rabbit races. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the theme. And so we, I did that for a little bit, yeah. but you know, it's, it clearly wasn't a, a pathway to mm-hmm. my career, but it, it gave me some insight into, you know, this is kind of interesting. I right. really enjoy this. And I was studying business, at the university of San Diego. And I decided to incorporate some journalism classes, right? Cause USD didn't have any journalism or didn't have communications. So I went out and I was trying to get some journalism classes and see if I would enjoy it. And I did. Hmm. So I put a, I put a resume tape together and I got an internship in San Diego with the ABC affiliate, um, back in the day. And I put a, I put a resume tape together and I sent it out to a few places and drove it out to a few places like Yuma, Arizona. Hmm. And I walked into Yuma, Arizona to the NBC affiliate. And I said, Hey, what do you think? And he said, eh, it's hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. But we really could use somebody. Sure. And, you know, so they, they, you know, they gave me a whopping $10,000 a year. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, $11,000 a year. Oh my, okay. Every year mm-hmm. though, Joe, it was every year they gave yeah. me $11,000. Hey man, so, just getting a paycheck, especially you're coming out of college and everything. It's uh that's, that's yeah. a big thing. It was <laughs> yeah. a big thing. It wasn't, paid it, for I, I was tending bar earlier and I was making a lot more than $11,000 okay. a year tending bar. So mm-hmm. it was, a, it was a big kind of, I thought, oh, $11,000 a year. How am I going to live on that? <laughs> sure. But everybody was making that much money. And right. so you kind of, you're in with these people who are all, you know, they're all like-minded. They all want to be journalists. They all mm-hmm. want to be broadcasters and they're all making no money. Mm-hmm. And so we would kind of hang out together and critique each other's work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd find a, a place where we can get a 50 cent beer mm-hmm. and we'd go and we'd shoot some pool and stuff like that. And it became very fun. And I went from I went from Yuma, Arizona to um, Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Boise, by the way, is the proper pronunciation. I, I understand this from the natives. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But the funny thing about that is that I almost feel like I need to say Boise because if I say Boise, I don't want anybody to think I'm impersonating a native. And it, it is a crazy you yeah. think. And I'm the same way. I'll stay mm-hmm. to to the. When I'm on television, I'll say Boise, Idaho is this because really it's Boise. Correct. But if you, but if you, the whole world thinks, well, he just say Boise. <laughs> right. Only Boiseans say Boise. They right? say Boise. Yeah, so yeah. everybody else is like, it's Boise, Idaho. You're damned so, if you do, you're damned if you don't. That's if right. If you're not, it's one of those things. Okay. It's how yeah. do you, how do you kind of, you know, how do you mm-hmm. narrow the divide? Mm-hmm. And I think the best way is just to say, 
Boise, Idaho, because everybody knows Boise, Idaho. If you say Boise, yeah. they're like, oh, he, he said Boise again. Drives me crazy when he says Boise. What is Boise? Yeah. But in Idaho, it's Boise. So yeah, when right. you're on the air in Idaho, it is, you know, welcome to Boise's five o'clock news, mm. Idaho at five, you know, yeah, that right. kind of thing. Yeah. But I was in Boise for mm. a couple of three years and um, it was a capital city. And so that's where I started kind of getting into politics. Right. Mm. So we cover a lot of politics, very little crime. Mm. I mean, news overall, local news around the country, yeah. it's pretty heavy on crime. Sure. Boise, Idaho didn't have any crime. I mean, mm -hmm. they had a very low crime rate. They had a lot of environmental issues. They had a lot of activism. They had a lot of politics. They had mm -hmm. a lot of interesting things that really got me thinking a lot about politics and a lot about, you know, how laws are structured and how they, you know, lobbyists come in and they try to, you know, they try to sway these people. And mm -hmm. so I really learned a lot about politics in Boise, Idaho. And then I went from Boise, Idaho Boise, Boise mm -hmm. to Las Vegas, yeah. um, where I worked for the NBC affiliate as well. And, uh, and you know, it was, I was in Vegas for, that was at the point in your career where you start getting hits, you know, you start mm -hmm. getting people saying, Hey, come here, come here, come here. So mm -hmm. I would be offered you know, literally every month you're offered a couple of different jobs in mm -hmm. Los Angeles and this place and this place. Right? right. Because you're, you know, you're starting to kind of make a name for yourself and people are seeing you and, you know, you're sending tapes out and agents are starting to look at you. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I met a girl on a blind date in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Her name is Tracy, Tracy, oh, Tracy. Is that so? Okay. My actual name is Tracy, mm -hmm. but you know, I was always Trace. My dad called me Trace. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know being Tracy, but that's my name. <laughs> okay, so okay. I went on a blind date. Mm -hmm. I almost didn't go on a blind date. A buddy mm -hmm. of mine who's very well known in broadcasting. He's a sports yeah. broadcaster. His name is Colin Cowherd. And, yeah, yeah. Colin and so Colin is, uh, is done very well in Boston. Mm -hmm. Colin was the sports guy in Vegas and I was a news guy. Mm -hmm. And Colin said to me, he walks into our office one day. He says, Hey, I'm, I'm dating this girl. She's got a friend. What do you think? <laughs> how about, a, how about we go out blind date Saturday night? Mm -hmm. I, I, I've got nothing. So sure. we went, mm -hmm. but the girl that I was going with cheated mm. Saw me on TV the yeah. night before, ruined the whole blind date thing. <laughs> Did not like what she saw, John. Oh, boy. And tried to cancel the date. Oh, what a bummer. But this is before cell phones were really prevalent. Mm -hmm. So she didn't have a cell phone. And the girl she was going with didn't have, I mean, there was no way to get a hold of her. So she called her mom. She's like, I don't want to go. This is, this is horrible. She wasn't able to get the cancellation. Couldn't get the time. cancellation. In. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of funny because her mom said, just go. He's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, you're not going to marry the guy, just mm -hmm. go on the blind date. <laughs> so we went on the blind date and, and as expected, it was not very good. And mm -hmm. it was just, it was really awkward. And she was younger than me. And I thought this is just, it's not going to work out. Plus your names kept getting confused. Names and, are confused yeah, and people yeah. are like, Oh, not going to work out. And so the next day I was, I called Colin and he's like, well, what'd you think? I said, well, they said, you're never going to see that girl again because <laughs> I just don't think it worked out. And mm -hmm. then her friend calls me. Uh, mm -hmm. later that afternoon says, Oh, well, she had the best time. And I'm thinking, oh. was she on the same date? <laughs> Cause we, I, we, were we on the same date. Sure. Uh, and so we, we literally ended up moving across country together three months later. Cause I got a job in, in Florida. Mm -hmm. And so we moved across country together and, uh, you know, we've now been married for 27 years. Mm, beautiful. So, the, so the, the, the thing is, and I worked in, in Orlando, Florida, and then I got a job at Fox in 1996. I was one of the first people they hired. So mm -hmm. I've been with Fox the entire time they've been on the air, mm -hmm. almost 27 years. Right, right. So, and in that time I've been in Chicago for them, mm -hmm. uh, San Francisco, 
Mm. Uh, Los Angeles to New York, back to Los Angeles to New York. You know how it is. Mm. Just you just keep moving and you keep trying to build your career. And, um, you know, and here I am. But yeah. I think that the whole media concept of this, of what your effort is in mm-hmm. the Braver Angels thing really plays a, a pivotal part because, mm-hmm. you know, you come on our show and I know you're trying to, you know, listen, you're trying to, to make sure that you're portraying both sides of the story and, and then trying to, to, to guide us in the middle ground, mm-hmm. which I think is effective. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that's, that's what the goal should be is to try and find some middle ground. But right now it, it's not succeeding because it is very divisive mm. in media. Well, yeah, it's, it's elusive. I mean, you know, you talked about the difference between Boise and Boise, right? The, the, the ways in which uh, the American people have come to speak and hear in distinctly different political languages is such that it really challenges the craft of communicating across that divide. And so part of what we're trying to do at Braver Angels is essentially both through sort of direct uh, vehicles for fostering d- discussion, but also just through narrative work, through mm-hmm. the sort of commentary that I try to offer, give people a way of entering into political discussion that allows us to be able to sort of sync up on the on the plane of those values that we perhaps do still share, those things that do surface, whether it's at the football game or, you know, just sort of uh, in the neighborhood when we pass each other at the supermarket, we don't happen to notice that somebody's got on a MAGA cap or a mm-hmm. BLM shirt. We're able to connect on those things that are more fundamental. But ultimately, we do need to be able to engage each other on the points of deep disagreement. And there are ways in which I think most of us would argue that the, the, the sort of the news media model can complicate that effort. Right. Mm, yeah. So that's that's part of what I want to engage you on here. So, you know, I imagine that when you and your friends uh, that sort of early that, that that cohort of colleagues and associates you had when you were just breaking into journalism, you know, you guys would have had, you know, Walter Cronkite in, in the rearview mirror, um, you know, I guess folks like Edward Murrow and so forth. Um, I, I'd be curious to know if you think that, you know, maybe we over romanticize that golden age of of journalism. I mean, it, it, many of us will think back to the day when you just had ABC and NBC and CBS. You had three networks. Everybody was watching the same thing. Right. There's that polling that showed, although I don't know if this was a very scientific poll, but you know, this idea that Walter Cronkite was the most respected and trusted man in America. Sure. There was the sense that in those days, uh, the, the, the media was providing a shared frame of reference that allowed for us to operate mm-hmm. in the same reality and sort of track the same storyline, you know, even if you had disagreements between Republicans and Democrats. I- I've got more to say about that, but I just want to pause there. Is that a true story? Or are we sort of looking at the past the road co- rose-colored glasses, in your opinion? A little when bit. We think about it that yeah, way. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. I think yeah. I think what happens is is that perspective changes, right? And so mm-hmm. so now you have you have conservative media outlets. I mean, you have places like the Daily Caller and, mm. and, you know, you have the Federalist and you have some conservative outlets where mm. back in the day when you had just Cronkite and mm. Harry Reasoner and, you know, when there were just three, mm. even Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings, there were just three. That's all you had. There mm. wasn't, maybe there was a little bit in the, in the 80s, there was a little bit of Rush Limbaugh and AM radio that was kind of starting to get through. But for the most part, everybody got their news from one side of the spectrum. And it's not to say that, you know, that, that Rather and Jennings and Brokaw, now we learn that they were all, they were all center left. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, Jennings and Dan Rather, to this point, he's in his early 90s. Mm-hmm. Dan Rather is 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 not center left. He's far left. And Tom Brokaw is center left. And Peter Jennings was center left. So they were all coming from the same perspective. But because you didn't have the other side, because there wasn't somebody who was giving you center right perspective, everybody thought, well, this is kind of the way it is. We all kind of fall within this framework. And now because we have social media and we have, you know, conservative outlets, people are getting different sides to the story. And it's, it's kind of polarizing, right? Mm -hmm. It's pushing, it's pushing the media outlets further and further to their respective corners to, to use a boxing term. And that's kind of what is, that's kind of what's happening. And, and quite frankly, you know, a lot of it's based on, on money. You know, people like mm, companies like the New York Times before in 2014, the New York Times was struggling and they didn't know what the business model was going forward. A lot of people weren't signing up for, you know, the dot com memberships Mm -hmm. and and those types of things. And the New York Times was struggling and their subscription numbers were going down every single month, every year. And then along comes Donald Trump and the New York Times decided they were going to pick a side. And they picked a side against Donald Trump and their numbers went up and it was a very, and still is a very successful business model for them. So that's what happens is, is the media outlets, you know, democracy dies in darkness and the Washington post and, you know, they figured, yeah, democracy dies in darkness, but papers that don't have money also die. (laughs) And so, so they had to figure out a way to monetize this thing and they, and they, they, for all intents and purposes, pick sides. Right. And, and that's what happened and their models were successful. And that's kind of where we are. We are, we are now, no, there's, and there's, you know, some of these people are like news nation saying, oh, we're going to cover it right from the middle, right down the middle. Well, mm-hmm. they're not, they're really not. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause they're seeing who their advertisers are. They're seeing yeah. who their subscribers are, who's watching it. And then they're kind of, they're, they're catering to what those people, what that demographic is. Right. Yeah. So if, if news nation tomorrow started doing, you know, had a million viewers and 850,000 of those viewers were liberals, mm-hmm. guess what news nation would be sure. liberal. They yeah. would go with the money. That's the whole, that's the concept. Well, I want to engage you on this point about objectivity. First of all, let me just, because it's such an elusive thing, it's easy to hold that up as a value, hold it up as a goal. In practice, it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing. First of all, I want to just say that I think you, you make a really valuable point on the history here, because, you know, many of us will look back and say, ah, you know, they used to play it right down the middle. Walter Cronkite was trusted by all, so on and so forth. And I think that you're, you're right. There's a way in which many conservatives never quite saw it that way. I mean, Barry Goldwater was somebody who was very critical of basically the media establishment mm-hmm. in his time. That's partially why you got a national review in William F. Buckley, right. right? You sort of needed that, you sort of needed that, that counterbalancing voice. And then in the rise of, you know, talk radio, Rush Limbaugh came along later and so forth. And eventually uh, you might say sort of culminating perhaps in, in Fox news, right. uh, suddenly you have real conservative representation, representation in the, in the conversation. Right. But uh, one of the things that my, Matt Taibbi told me uh, in a conversation uh, interview we had with, with him a while back is that, you know, you also just had this sort of shift in the business model where in once upon a time when you had just a few outlets, uh, it was more profitable to try and speak to as as many Americans as possible. And so they spoke a language that perhaps wasn't at least deliberately right. polarizing the same way. Whereas then the incentives shift and just along the lines of what you're saying, mm-hmm. in order to sort of capture a share of the market, you had to sort of drive a hard line. So I want to I want to pull those currents into a question about sort of core journalistic ethics and what Mm -hmm. does it mean to even be a journalist 
in the first place. The romantic vision we have of it is that, you know, journalists ought to strive to be objective. Right. And then, you know, you've got opinion makers and that, you know, sometimes one masquerades as the other, but that those really should be different, uh, different things. Sure. I heard Don Lemon say not too long ago, uh, you know, he was sort of giving his his definition of himself as a journalist. And I'm not going to quote him exactly here, but I think I'm being fair when I when I say that he said something very close to, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. And as a journalist, I have an obligation uh, to speak from my own lived experience or to allow my own lived experience to inform how I cover the issues. Right. And I thought that that was really fascinating because I, I thought to myself, that almost sounds like the exact opposite of of what some people might traditionally have considered a journalist to be. Traditionally speaking, you might have thought that a journalist was somebody who said, okay, I'm going to look at the facts, plain and simple. I'm going to give it to you straight, let you draw your own opinions. And yet, one thing we know about human beings is that we all have our biases, right? We all come from a particular individual experience. Try as you might, I think, you know, it's 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 hard to be 100% neutral. It might be impossible. And so I feel like I see some journalists who are saying, you know what, let's dispense with this idea that mm-hmm. we can even be neutral because we can't. And so let's let's focus in on just owning the lived experience. It's right. kind of the Don Lemon approach. And then I think I see other folks who are, you know, trying to sort of hold to that traditional view of let's let's call balls and strikes. But w- w- is there a balance in in the middle? I mean, how should a journalist really uh, approach their their craft given the difficulty of objectivity? Well, one on Don Lemon, I think Don Lemon kind of gave up his journalist uh, credos a while back when he decided to do an opinion show on CNN, which he did sure. for years, mm-hmm. uh, late night opinion show. It was strictly opinion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, he can say he's a journalist. I think he's a very talented guy, yeah. you know, and, and I always have. Um, but this is part of the confusion, the blurring of the lines right. here. But right? he's, he's is- blurring his own lines because he's no longer a journalist. He decided to become an opinion uh, person. And that's kind of what he does. That's okay. his deal. And mm-hmm. listen. Good for him. He picked a thing. It's it's no different than than a, a reporter or a correspondent for the New York Times becoming a columnist, right? Mm-hmm. They become a columnist and they decide that they get to kind of inflict their opinion in their pieces. Sure. That's the way it works. Mm-hmm. It's the elevation. Don Lemon took that path. Good for him. Mm-hmm. So, but but to say, oh, I, I can back up and become a journalist again, I think is is a little disingenuous. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what's happening in journalism overall, is that you have some people who who are, you know, they are, they are trying at least to bring both sides of the story. My, my whole idea in journalism is that you really should, you should be allowing people to make up their own minds. You should be giving them enough information from both sides. And sometimes it's skewed because stories are skewed. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they come from different perspectives. They come from different parts of the country, from different parts of the world. Sometimes stories themselves are just inherently different and they, they come from a different part of the political spectrum. That's just the way it is. But as a journalist, your goal should be is to take the information that you have, the factual information that you have, and you give it to the audience and you kind of let the audience draw their own conclusion. You shouldn't have to steer them down the road. It's like, I always say, I should never know. I should never know what my teacher's political affiliation is. I just shouldn't. I mean, my daughters are at the university of Alabama, but when they were in high school, you know, there was clearly some political influence in some of these classes. And my, my question was always, why is it that students at school students should have to know what political 
persuasion their teachers are. You should never know that. You're, you should be teaching information. You're not teaching ideology. You're giving students information and you should give it to them in the best, most compelling way you can, but you should not be trying to skew the information you give. I should never know the political affiliation of my judge. If I stand before a judge because I committed a crime, if I did wrong, I should never know the political affiliation of my judge. And we're losing that in America now. Even circuit court judges and local judges, we are losing that because we know their political affiliation. So, and so do the lawyers. The lawyers are bringing the lawyers are bringing lawsuits to certain courts because they know those will be more successful to them. I mean, this Donald Trump lawsuit was clearly brought to the court in in Manhattan because they know Alvin Bragg knows the people of Manhattan do not like Donald Trump. I mean, 98 percent voted against him. So he he knows he's got a really good opportunity and good odds of getting a jury that is not going to be uh, persuaded or, you know, influenced by Donald Trump. They are going to, they're not going to be on his team. So let me jump in and try and pin you down really quick on that statement, Trace. Is that a statement coming from a place of of opinion or responsible journalistic observation? Because what you said to me makes sense. And and I'm in a position where, you know, I'm an opinion columnist. I I try and speak Mm -hmm. to left and right, try and bring people, people together. But I'm in this weird murky ground as a podcaster where I can be sort of upfront about my own sorts of, you know, biases and instincts and say that I think what you said makes perfect sense. But is it is it is it easy and comfortable to say a thing like that, given the fact that you're speaking to a person's motivation? Because I'm sure he wouldn't. I'm guessing he wouldn't say that about him himself. Alan Bragg? Alan or, Bragg. Uh, yeah, maybe he wouldn't say that about himself, but I think if he, he was... He would present himself as, a, as as somebody who's dispassionately pursuing justice. Yes, but he's also presented himself as a progressive. He is also a self-described progressive. So he clearly comes from one side of the political spectrum. Hmm. So he has, and he campaigned because he knew he wanted this position. He campaigned right. on on making Donald Trump pay. He campaigned on, you know, justice, providing justice for the people of his district and that Donald Trump was a part of that. And he his take is and whether he's right, wrong or, right. or you know, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. He his campaign was that he was going to make Donald Trump pay for the crimes or the wrongs that he did. And so he did that and he's living up to that. Understood. I don't think I don't think I don't think anybody is going to say, oh, Alvin Bragg is a is a right down the middle, fair you know, a jurist. He's not, he is not coming at this from center ground. He's admitted to that. He is a progressive uh, district attorney and that's kind of where he sits and progressive is far left. He, he came through a far left ideology and I don't think he's trying to hide that. I don't think there's any question he's trying to hide that. What I think he's saying is, is that he is following the letter of the law when it comes to Donald Trump. Mm. But but I don't think there's any question that while he says he's following the letter of the law, he is he is coming at it from an entirely different perspective. He's coming at it from the left instead of coming at it from from the middle. So there is clear bias going into it, whether or not uh, Donald Trump was wrong or was was felonious in this thing is a separate matter. And and it should be adjudicated by a jury of his peers and down the line. How Alvin Bragg comes at this case is is pretty clear where his political affiliation lies and where his you know, where his loyalty lies is, I think, very evident to everybody, even those who are on the left would would acknowledge yeah, Evan Bragg is a he's a far left prosecutor. George Gascon is a far left prosecutor. Yeah, George gotcha. Gascon is never going to speak at mm-hmm. a CPAC 
hearing where he's, you know, he's, he's just not going to, to feign conservatism just to get votes. It's just not where he comes from. Well, I just wanted to sneak a jab in on you on that point, Trace, just because you're speaking to this larger, this larger issue of, I mean, earlier, even before we jumped on the mic, um, I think we started to talk about just the politicization of, of, of everything and, you know, even sports. And of course, sports is a bit more resistant to that than some other things. But you would like to think that media, that the law, that our institutions would be able to maintain their credibility right. Right. by presenting themselves as being more concerned with the welfare of the American people and executing their particular functions in our society, regardless of any sort of political biases by anybody who might be in them. But we are rapidly losing our confidence that that's that that's true. I do think that the Bragg example is is a is a a, a good one and, and an appropriate one because again, whether you agree or disagree, the scent of politics on justice right. is one that's tough. The scent of politics on the integrity of information as it comes through the media is something that's that's really you know that's 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 really tough. It undermines undermines our confidence in our institutions and, and in each other. Right. Um, so I want to ask you: Is it a problem that? in the journalism industry in general, that although I, I think in good faith, we might like to believe that a vast, that a majority of people are seeking the truth and seeking to be honest and so forth, um, that nevertheless, I think the stat I've heard is that some 93% of journalists are people who you know, lean left, vote left. I don't know if they're registered Democrats typically, but even if they don't wear their politics, you know, on, on, you know, on their, on their shirt, um, is that a problem right off that the industry tends to pull so heavily from people whose uh, backgrounds are on one side of the political aisle or the other? Or does, should that not make a difference so long as people are studying what it means to be a journalist and trying to check their politics at, at the door? Right. No, I, I think I, kind of back to my earlier statement where I shouldn't know the politics of the journalist that I'm listening to. And I shouldn't know the politics of my teacher and I shouldn't know the politics of my judge. Do those people deserve and have the right to share their own ideology and to believe how they want? Absolutely. They can believe any way they want. They can be on any side of the aisle they want, but when they're dealing with somebody else, when they're, when they're providing information, when they are providing a verdict, when they are providing uh, education, they should do it in a way that leaves politics out. So, so you should not be punished, right? You said John Wood goes into a courtroom for a traffic ticket. You should not have to pay an extra hundred dollars because the judge deems that you are leaning to one side of the political aisle or the other. That's not the way justice works, right? It's supposed to be blind and justice is no longer blind. And we're learning this. And that's the saddest part about it. Education is supposed to be unbiased. It is supposed to be teaching information so that students can use this information and make their own decisions to be able to read and to write and to do mathematics so they can take this information and they can live better lives and they can have, um, you know, make their own decisions and move on. And that's the the concept. Journalists, are they far left? Yeah. Oh, most polls say that journalists are, are lean to the left. And mm-hmm. I think that that doesn't bother me one bit. It's what they do in the arena of journalism mm-hmm. that is that is most important. I yeah. mean, you can be any mm-hmm. political persuasion. You can do mm-hmm. anything you want to. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I have no I have no care. I do care that you bring your politics to work with you. And now you, instead of being a journalist, you're an activist. And I have problems with that. But even short of that, is there a reason to be concerned about 
the echo chamber effect. That even if you're coming to your job with with good intentions, with you know wanting to sort of honor honor the the, the requirements of your position, when you're just surrounded by people mm-hmm. who maybe see the world in a somewhat similar way mm-hmm. as 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 you do, but you have to then speak to a whole country full of people who don't, does it not make it more likely that you might frame issues in a way that tilts a certain way? I mean, there's this term that's usually applied to sort of you know, uh, interethnic uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, privilege versus non, non-privileged sort of, mm-hmm. sort of uh, interactions called implicit bias, right? Mm-hmm. So sort of the implicit bias that you might have if you're a person of privilege, so on and so right. forth. But is there not something like that that unfolds in institutions, whether they're concentrated to the left or to the right, but in the case of media, it tends to be concentrated towards the left. Right. Is there a way in which it's just hard to see conservative America if you're just surrounded by folks from the left, even if you're trying your damnedest? Sure. I mean, very, very much so. I yeah. mean, people in people in and I think I said this earlier, my girls go to the University of Alabama. Right. Yeah. And Alabama is a conservative state. Yeah. And the University of Alabama is not a conservative university. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like universities around the country where it tends yeah. to be it actually tends to lean liberal because that's the university model. Right. right. So um, but at the same time, the people who live in Alabama have a hard time understanding how the people of California rationalize things, right? Mm-hmm. They don't quite see, you know, they don't quite understand how they're, that they're actually reasoning and rationalizing different topics. And it's the same way that people in California don't really quite see how the people of Alabama and some people in the South are, are yeah. rationalizing the things that they believe are important to them. There's mm-hmm. been this, there has been this, um, this kind of, attack on Christianity as of late. I mean, it's not as of late. It's been long standing. I mean, it just seems to me like nowadays that Christians are more open game than ever is that nobody has to apologize for attacking Christians. Nobody has to apologize. We just had a case of a, of a person who, who went and attacked a church, a Catholic church, and it was a slap on the wrist and out you go. And that's the way it is. Now, had somebody went in and attacked a different religion uh, one would believe that the consequences would be more severe because we have seen that as kind of a pattern, right? And, but when you attack Christianity, when you attack, I mean, we just learned this in the shooting uh, a couple of weeks ago in, in where the, the, you know, the, the trans person walked in and shot a Christian school, shot three nine-year-olds and three adults. And it wasn't long before the media started saying, you know, it wasn't, they weren't looking for, oh my gosh, the kids and the adults and the Christian school was attacked. It was being, it was being turned to now trans people Mm. are under fire. Mm. Trans people have a target on their backs. And you think, well, how did we get to there? How did that narrative shift? And that's what's happening is that the first, the first side to be able to shift the narrative most effectively tends to win these types of arguments. By the way, on that point, how much is social media now sort of complicating the craft of 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 journalism and and there's a whole bunch of ways in which we could we could possibly come at that part of what occurs to me in that particular example is that you had this tragic shooting uh and then i think you did have people sort of sort of saying like well you know there's this larger issue of sort of attacks on the trans community and we need to be concerned you know with that even while we're sort of still mourning you know the loss of these folks at this christian school doesn't seem to get a lot of sympathy in comparison to other events but one thing i also noticed was that when i was on twitter i'm on mm-hmm. social media and so forth i'm seeing a lot of people saying things like well look this is this is what you get you know sort of some of these crazy trans people and so forth you know uh, 
this is uh, this is an ideology that you know, is capable of turning violent and so forth. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, on the one hand, I want to just empathize with the victims, right? Mm-hmm. I want to live in a world where when we have loss of life, we take the time to honor that right. and not make it about, you know, tribal narratives in one direction or the other. Right. At the same time, I imagine, you know, okay, I can imagine some of my liberal journalist friends and commentator friends looking at some folks on the right, kind of, you know, referring to this as a trans mm-hmm. issue on social media. Does that bubble up to some of some of the news news coverage? I mean, it's a big jumbled mess in my mind, but I feel like social media is a part of what's scrambling things because I, I feel like it's hard for us to have a clear sense of where reality is because social media sort of gives us this cultivated outrage sampling, you know, outrage based sampling right. of of reality. I'm just wondering how that factors in to the way in which mainstream media or traditional media sort of covers things. Yeah, I mean, and, and here's how here's an example of how strong social media has become and the different factions of social media. Yeah. And, you know, they really have it doesn't have it doesn't take much. It doesn't take a, a very large group on social media to make a very large impact. Exactly. And that's kind of what we're learning is that if you look at you look at the transgender issue. And we are at a situation where we've done poll after poll after poll. And the whole concept of of should should transgender athletes be able, should biological males be able to compete against biological females in high school, junior high school and college? And 85 percent of America says no, because it's not fair. Eighty five percent. And yet it is a hot and passionate debate in this country. You have 15 percent of the population, according to these polls, that believes that biological men should be able to compete against biological women. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of the same thing as 85% of the population thinks the sky is blue, right? Mm-hmm. And the 15% who don't, we don't have this debate on whether the sky is blue, because even if 15% believe that it's not blue, mm-hmm. it's not big enough. It's not enough of, of a, a groundswell to change the conversation because 85% are not, they're just not going to listen to 15% of the population. We're a democracy. And yet the 15% of the population in this case, where Mm -hmm. they're fighting to have biological males compete against females has become so strong on social media. And it seems like this force to be reckoned with when, when the reality is that 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 the the vast majority of America believes you're not right, yeah. and yet we're having this argument every day yeah. because that's how powerful social media has gotten. We think they're we think they're this dominant force when the reality is they're not. They're just very vocal. They're very loud. They've got the megaphone, and they're very loud. And because they're very loud, America thinks that it's an even debate. And it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even zooming out of this particular example and just speaking to things in general, you know, it's, it's always possible that the 15 percent can be right about issue. It's always possible. Sure. But, but that's not the democracy. That's not the place we live in. That's not the place we live. But again, to your point, if that 15 percent or if a minority of people are concentrated in a place where they happen to have their hands on the megaphone, mm-hmm. then suddenly, you know, it, it, it changes the impression of things fairly 
fairly dramatically. I mean, and it gets back to the politicization of everything, too. We can't even rely, I guess, on our beer companies to not right. <laughs> you know, sort of, you know, polarize us right. a little bit. If anything, should be bringing us together as beer, right. I suppose. And Bud know? Light apologized today for this because they know it's been costing them a lot of money, $5 billion. Yeah, so Bud Light came out and apologized to well, this today. Like, and, and so it's an interesting thing because, you know, I mean, you have people who are, you know, within the institution, mm-hmm. in this case, the institution of Anheuser, Anheuser-Busch, who I think, you know, maybe have a certain frame of reference, want to sort of, you know, send a certain social signal and that's important to them, but they may not even realize themselves whether they are right or wrong, whether they are right or wrong, just how much they find themselves out of touch with where most people are at. And in in this case, their consumer base. Mm -hmm. But this comes to my mind to be another example. And I think that there's a multitude of examples we could point to in terms of how it is that our institutions and our predominant sort of organizations in American life um, you know, civic and political, but not just that, corporations and mm-hmm. so forth, uh, have found themselves just sort of out of touch with the people that they, out of touch with the people that they serve. And it shows up a, a lot in just sort of the media storytelling. I think that you've got a lot of ways in which, you know, media is sort of covering things. Um, and, you know, I think media sort of, most outlets would seem to lean left, but conservative media reaches a lot of people. I think most Americans feel like they're left out in the middle. Right. Somewhere. Right. Most Americans would say, you know, you got a lot of Democrats who watch Fox News. You still got, you know, a number of Republicans who watch, you know, CNN and certainly ABC, NBC. But I don't feel like most Americans feel like they're really being spoken to. I feel like they feel like they're being spoken at. Sure. You know? Yeah. And uh, I'm wondering if you can if you can sympathize with that. Well, I, I can. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, you, it just goes back to some of these things where when you had the Georgia voting law came in and, and everybody from President Biden to Coca-Cola to Delta Airlines to Major League Baseball called it, you know, Jim Crow 2.0. They said it was racist. And they said, you know, they pulled the all-star game. They pulled yeah. the all-star game out of Atlanta, cost Atlanta you know, um, a city of uh, a city with a with a large black population. Mm-hmm. It cost them hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. And so they pulled it out of Atlanta. And, and it turns out at the end when the vote was count in in Georgia sure. that they they polled people and 98 percent of black voters said, no, we had no problem voting. It was exactly mm-hmm. the same. In fact, it was in many cases easier. Ninety eight percent. You can't get 98 percent again to go out and say this guy is blue. You just can't. And so, but none of these companies apologize. Coca-Cola didn't apologize. Delta Airlines didn't apologize. Nobody apologized for doing that to the state of Georgia, right? It was unjust. It was wrong. They were wrong about their stance. And yet nobody apologized. They just moved on to the next cause. And they will continue to do that, to pick a cause. They're not going to pick a cause that supports Donald Trump because they know that even though maybe 45% of the population support Donald Trump, they're not about to jump on that because they think it's, they think it's the wrong side of history. Mm -hmm. So corporations think that's the wrong side of history. Corporations jumping on board with Christian organizations, they think it's the wrong side of history. And so they're just not going to do it. And so that's kind of where we feel, they feel safer in, in, um, they feel safer in speaking out about liberal causes because they think that it's okay. It's the same thing about, you know, you walk in, I was after Donald Trump won the election back in 2016, I was flying home the next morning because I was in New York and I was flying back to LA and, and people are walking on and they're yelling. They're, they're angry about the Donald Trump thing. They're angry that he won and they're, they're, they're throwing stuff and they're like, this is BS. And, mm-hmm. and you think that would, it would never, if, if somebody was angry that Hillary Clinton had won and a conservative walked in and said, this is BS, it wouldn't be accepted. Mm-hmm. But 
You can get angry about Donald Trump and it's accepted. You can get angry about something that the conservatives are doing that makes you mad and it's accepted. But if you get angry at something the liberals are doing, sometimes you don't voice it, which is the problem we've had in all this polling, is that they have found that the reason they underpolled Trump in 2016 and again in you know the conservatives in 2018 is because people are reticent mm-hmm. to give their opinions because they think that, you know, oh, I don't want to say that. You know, it's me. It's Joe Biden with, you know, the MAGA, the MAGA conservatives. It's the MAGA conservatives. It's the MAGA radicals. It's the people who who feel like they're being villainized just because they they supported a different uh, political position than somebody else. Final fundamental question. And, um, you know, and 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 maybe this this goes right to the heart of heart of attention. Feel free to push back on the framing. But I seem to recall, I can't remember the exact figure, but, you know, uh, during the height of the Black Lives Matter protest, some significant percentage of Americans believed that that African-Americans were being gunned down in the streets by by the tens of tens of thousands mm-hmm. and grossly inflated mm-hmm. sense of, you know, how many people were actually dying at the hands of police. Whatever you think about that issue, Americans were dramatically out of touch with what the facts were. Right. But I can go back a few years before that and remember when polling suggested that some 55% or so of Fox viewers believed that weapons of mass destruction had been found in Iraq, mm-hmm. right? Right. Run up to the Iraq war and so forth. And of course, that was not true. Not true. Many people uh, feel that uh, it's going to be hard to bring the American people together, you know, if we don't rally around truth. Now, I feel like there's a way in which, you know, just bludgeoning each other with facts isn't going to get us anywhere if we don't have some basic human respect. Sure. But as a journalist, do you have some sense that both sides of the aisle could do better, particularly when you involve opinion commentary uh, in allowing us to reside in the realm of as close as we can to being in touch with sort of empirical reality? Is there any way we can do that while also being drunk on, on, on partisan narrative? And with that, I'm going to give you the final word. I think that I think that, you know, just just to go back to your point where you have, you know, journalism and media and the whole concept that it can be fair and it can be balanced and it can try and and give you both sides of the story. I mean, you have to kind of think back to the whole Russian collusion thing, which was wrong. It was as wrong as the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So Russian collusion turned out to be every bit as wrong as weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which mm-hmm. which for all intents and purposes, you know, caused us to fight two separate wars. Right. But but the idea is, is that the Washington Post and the New York Times shared a Pulitzer, ostensibly the highest prize in journalism, one of the highest prizes in journalism for their coverage of Russian collusion. And and yet it never happened. You know, you you have this special counsel report that came out and said, in essence, there's nothing there. It just there was no evidence that any of this ever happened. So the New York Times, the Washington Post didn't give back their Pulitzer. They didn't give back like, well, you know what? That was really not a story that we covered for two and a half years that we won a Pulitzer Prize for. Mm -hmm. I mean, you imagine winning Best Picture for a Mm -hmm. movie that was never made. It's just the whole concept of, of if you really want honesty in journalism, and it's the same across every different platform, whether it's newspapers or broadcast or whatever, people make mistakes. And when you make a mistake, whether it's about weapons of mass destruction or climate change or Russian collusion, you should correct it. It Mm -hmm. should be corrected and it should be stated that, you know what, we got that wrong. We got it wrong. We have covered, we have covered, John, school shootings 
for decades, right? And it's a sad thing. And every time we cover them, and I say the same thing, and I've covered a lot, I say uh, the information that we're telling you now is being given to us by police officers, and it invariably will change. It's going to change because it's the fog of war, the early minutes of these things. We just don't know the precise details. We're giving you the best of our ability, but with a caveat that it may change. In fact, it will likely change. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where that's where you have to deal with journalism is that you you know, we need to make sure that we are reporting the truth before we report it. And we tend to get ahead of ourselves because, you know, first sometimes translates into dollars. Right. The first the 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 one Mm -hmm. who's the loudest tends to translate into dollars, clicks, dollars, you know, advertising rates. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, for the for the benefit of the whole country, I think, you know, there should be a more of an emphasis. You can have political ideology, but you need to have truth. It needs to be true. And that's the key to the whole thing. You can, you can still cover what you want. And it's like, I say to everybody else, I say, you know, you look at people, the, the, the whole country doesn't is applauds people who want to be transgender. Nobody cares. Nobody cares if you're gay. Nobody cares anymore about any of that stuff. Mm. That's just the way it is. Now they do care that, that a biological male wants to shower with, with, with high school girls. That's a concern. That's a concern about parents. They don't, they don't care. This person is transgender. They care. This transgender person now wants to the right to go in and shower with this biological male wants to shower or this biological male wants to compete against females. They care about that. They care about the fairness of it, but they don't care about, they do care that, you know, that parents are, are being kept out of the loop when their child wants to transition. They mm-hmm. care about that because they don't think it's fair. Why would a, why would a school district that has to get parental consent to give a child an aspirin be able to conceal the fact that that child is now on puberty blockers? And that's something that the parents don't deserve to know because, because the parents don't always have the, the right goals in mind or, you know, the best intents for their children. Understood. That is is that is a problem. So you see where America stands. America does America for the most part, they don't care what people mm-hmm. do. They don't care what, as long as those people don't suddenly make them, you know, bow at their altar. That's the problem in America. Americans don't care what people do for the most part, as long as those people don't make the rest of America bow at their altar. Mm-hmm. That's the problem we have in America right now. And if we can get past that, we can remember that we still got enough in common to get along. We do. Yeah. Trace Gallagher, thank you for joining me on Uniting America. John Wood, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review, or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tune in for more content. And learn more about the movement to depolarize America. BraverAngels.org